He's a hit songwriter, novelist, poet, guitarist, engineer, live performer, classical and bluegrass singer, butterfly connoisseur, and can fly and has jumped out of a plane. He's got a to-do list and he knows how to use it. If you need some inspiration to move forward on something, settle back in a comfortable place and listen to my chat with Mark Elliott. Hello, this is Judy Rodman. You're listening to All Things Vocal Podcast. This is the audio version of the blog you can find at judyrodman.com. According to legendary career broadcaster Devin O'Day, as singer-songwriter, Mark Elliott is a lifer. I love that. He lives and breathes the poetry of existence. Man, what a quote, and I couldn't agree more. Mark started out as a singer-songwriter in the vibrant cultural scene of Washington, D.C. I didn't even know Washington, D.C. was a vibrant cultural scene. <laughs> so we <laughs> learn something every day. While still a teenager, Mark got the attention of legendary songwriter Tom Paxton. I worked with him. He's crazy. Well, he was really kind of crazy, wasn't he? <laughs> who, <laughs> who eventually led Mark to Nashville and to a publishing deal with Cherry Lane Music. Today, Mark is a critically acclaimed songwriter with songs in many top publishing houses and awards, including the venerable Kerrville New Folk Award. His songs have been cut by independent and major label artists. Billboard magazine called Mark's Neil McCoy hit, Every Man for Himself, a song with rare lyrical and musical edge and the best cut on the album. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. His work has also been lauded by other industry publications, including Martin Guitar Company's Sounding Board magazine and the UK's Maverick magazine. Music Row magazine said Mark was almost too good, and I'll bet he's a killer to hear live. Oh yeah. Mark is the principal singer, songwriter, and guitarist with his band Runaway Home. They actually stole my name, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> he has, he also has a new solo EP due out this summer. And for those of you that are listening later, it's the summer of 2020. And a newly released single called Craziest Thing. Mark writes books, blogs, essays, and is a regular contributor to Songbones magazine. Kirkus Reviews said of Mark's first full-length book, The Sons of Starmont, Memoirs of a Ten-Year-Old Boy, cheerful, more thoughtful than most reminisces, and quite enjoyable. I would add that virtually every line in that book is a sensory feast. We'll get a taste of his writing in a bit, and you'll know what I mean. You can find his personal blog at imacreativesoul.com, and that link will be in my podcast notes. And for information on his music and books, you can visit markelliotcreative.com. Again, that will be in the show notes. So without further ado, Mark Elliott, thank you so much for joining us today on All Things Vocal. Well, Judy, thanks for having me. Happy to be with you today. <laughs> so, you know, you're not just a jack of all trades. You are a multi-purpose Jedi master. So what I want to know is how you integrate and make all of these sides of you not only work, but work at such a high level and actually affect each other, I think. 
I have to admit, I, I use a uh, pretty high-tech to-do list, otherwise known as a over-expensive to-do list. <laughs> I actually use this <laughs> this uh, website called Monday.com, so I'll give them a little plug. Mm-hmm. And uh, it'll, it allows me to run pretty efficiently. I can uh, set up projects for the week, and it allows me, and you'll understand this, to do that virtual check mark, turn that little block green. There's something about <laughs> saying, hey, I've done that, right? That propels you to the next one. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so from a technical side, I do use I use some tools to kind of help me organize the week and, and organize projects. From another angle, though, you know, I'm, I'm a single guy now. I have no kids. Um, and so I'm, I'm legacy shopping with my songs and my books. I'm looking to kind of leave them as children behind. So I'm pretty well motivated to um, to create content and, and to throw things out into the world. Yeah. Well, you know what? To follow up on this little rabbit trail, what I also find is to do something really well, you have to get in that mindset. Do you find yourself like switching gears mentally when you change, you know, like when you're you're doing one thing and when you're doing a totally other kind of thing? Well, you do, because even though they're all relatively in the same kind of family of creative, you know, we're singing, we're writing, we're producing, um, the task at hand is very different. And you do have to sometimes switch from that technical to creative side. So, yeah, I mean, somewhat, I think, you know, one of the nice things about having a lot of projects and a lot of things to do is that when I kind of run out of creative steam on one, I can pivot to another. Yeah, yeah. So even even though on one side I think I <laughs> I'm probably doing too much and there's a certain inefficiency that comes from doing too much. And I've run into that some, but it, it is nice having a a long to-do list of creative things during the week because I do find that there are certain whether it's a book or a blog or a song uh, or a recording project, I may not be all on top of it one particular day so I can kind of pivot. And that Yeah. Helps. That's a great that's a great way to think of it. Yeah. As long as all those little green boxes get checked off at the end of the week. <laughs> and that the truth. <laughs> That's right. What I experienced about that was um, like if I'm performing, if I'm, I'm out on, on the road doing a few dates, it's, it's kind of hard for me to move into writing mode because I think my brain is in two different places. On the other hand, one uh, of my most creative songs that, that I think was, was one of the better written of the songs that I have done – I wrote in the middle of house cleaning. I was dusting and vacuuming and everything. And the muse just grabbed my butt and put it on the piano bench and out came a song. So it's like sometimes the muse likes to play when we're not looking, right? Well, yeah, you know, uh, you you had uh, in your intro talked about Tom Paxson finding me as a teenager and being the catalyst. And I can remember he said a couple of things to me before I moved to Nashville or maybe even my first few months in Nashville. And I, I always remember them. And one of them was, well, disappointment makes you bitter or better. That was on my re- refrigerator. Bitter for years. Or better, yeah. uh, and, I, and I've had to dig it out of the trash a lot. <laughs> uh, but I think the most important one is understanding that discipline is connected to inspiration. Right. So the more the more you do something, the more likely you are to to have that moment you just talked about that that lightning that says oh I've got I've got to move all this aside and work on this because it's hitting me. I found that if you write every day or if you sing nearly every day or play guitar or whatever your deal is like from a writer standpoint and you'll understand this for sure um, I'm more likely to hear that conversation behind me. Yeah. In the 
bar or at a table if I write every day. I'm more yeah. likely to pass that billboard and catch that little three-word phrase. But if I'm not writing every day, I think inspiration um, doesn't come as often and it comes less controlled. That's such good advice. And I think it's real important right now when it's sometimes difficult to see why we're doing something because we can't manifest it yeah. maybe on stage yeah. at the moment in the middle of the COVID crisis. For those of you that are right. listening later and hopefully the amphitheaters are filled again <laughs> uh, right now, uh, it's easy to just, you know, watch television and turn all the creative juices off because who needs them? But we don't need to do that. You are so right. We need to really do it. And as a creative, we do ask the question, why am I doing this all the time? Yeah, that's <laughs> You know, I mean, why do I do what I do, whether it's, um, you know, playing for next to nothing or putting in a lot of work on the front end with no guarantee of what will happen? So that question eventually becomes rhetorical. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, right. and, and you just work you, you work past it. But I think it's natural to uh, as a creative to ask that question. You know, why am I doing what am I doing? Well, besides all this, uh, let's look look at the other part of your brain, your other side. You're a studio owner, engineer, and producer. And the first time, in fact, yeah. we ever met was when I was at your studio. That's right. Uh, Cub Creek, where I was right. hired to produce vocals on one of your clients. Um, why did you decide to get into the technical side of making music? And how did you get all those butterflies to take up residence in front of your control room window? Oh, isn't that, isn't that perfect? Yeah. Guys, I got to tell you about this. Yeah, this is the, I went in there and, and like in front of the control room window, it looks like it could be like a video, but it's, it's, it's alive. It's literally alive. He's got a butterfly bush there that is absolutely brimming full of gorgeous butterflies. And the whole time you're recording, you're looking at these butterflies and it's just like, or for me yeah. producing somebody and you're watching these butterflies and how could you not do something incredible? It, it just worked out that way. It gives me a good excuse not to trim them back, too, so uh, not not to do yard work. For those of you that don't know Nashville, I live kind of out 30 miles or so to the west of Nashville. I'm tucked back into a hollow, and the end of the, of the house uh, faces the hollow and goes back for woods for miles. And it's a really, uh, what's what we talked about, it's that great combination between creativity and technology. So uh, when I need to kind of breathe in a little creativity. I just had to kind of pick my head up over the monitor and look out the back. <laughs> but you know, to your, to your question, you're right. I mean, I think modern day music uh, and even modern day uh, authoring uh, requires you to have some technological know-how. Exactly. Um, from, from the studio standpoint, I opened the studio about 20 years ago. And uh, of course, for the first um, probably 15 years, I had a lot of projects in here, a lot of full record projects. I did a lot of, um, you know, guitar vocals for songwriters, but yeah. everyone has their own project studio now. Okay. So it's the nature of that game has changed tremendously. I do a lot more uh, fixing where other people will think they can do it themselves and then get into trouble. And then I do a lot of fixing. Yeah. So that's the business of that has changed. And then frankly, I now at this point, I I keep it open for me and my and my friends so that we can just constantly create. Mm -hmm. But I love the technical side. You know, I mean, we're um, I always forget the left right side, but we're all right brained, right? <laughs> I mean, and sometimes we need a little uh, left brain love, and so exactly, 
I think diving into technological things, and uh, I'm a pilot as well. Oh my and goodness! Small small planes, and uh-huh. uh, people always think that it's the uh, wild blue yonder effect that I love about flying. But if I'm being totally truthful, it's the geek button pushing part wow. because I my life is wild blue like yonder, right? I mean, our lives as creatives, we get more wild blue yonder than we need, and so when I'm flying, uh, I get the other side and. I guess it's calming in a weird way, even though I want to throw computers computers out the window and things like that. <laughs> it, it also makes us more self-sufficient. Uh, because, yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, it, it, it is uh, costly to be in the studio a lot. And so if I want to, it, which is great for masters, because you know what you want to get and you hire the people to yeah. get them and all that. But if you're creating and you're changing your mind all the time, that can get, that can get costly. Uh, so it's yeah. nice to have your own, uh, you know, high level ability to, to record. And it's also nice to know people like you that when people like me get into trouble and make mistakes that yes, we can pass it on to you. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a business <laughs> plan now. <laughs> ah, um, okay. So the second time I saw you, you were in the row in front of my husband and my son and I at the Nashville symphony. Talk about how a bluegrass and Americana music maker also loves classical music. Well, I started in classical music, which a lot of people would be would be kind of shocked to hear. I actually, as a teenager, uh, was in an opera track with an opera coach. I had the pipes for it. I did not have the language skills, uh, which <laughs> I, I found insurmountable. Uh, and I had, I had a couple of very public and high-end uh, recitals that were the epitome of train wrecks. <laughs> and not long, <laughs> not long after a series of terrible train wrecks. And, you know, I don't, there's something about singing operatic style that when you do have a train wreck, there is no hiding it. <laughs> oh, there's no hiding it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's hard. You know, as a teenager, I guess I started uh, with an opera coach at about 16 and went through about, about 20 maybe. And, um, German, Italian. I could fake the Italian a little bit, but when we hit German, it was German. clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I can remember the opera coach coming to me and being very uncomfortable, although she was also very no-nonsense, straightforward woman, and she said, you know, this is this. <laughs> and she she suggested by that I go into bluegrass music. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> so she did. You are kidding me. So when you, when you, you she... asked me that question, well, Growing up in Washington, D.C., which is the other answer to your question, uh, you know, I was lucky to be a teenager in a major city, and I was lucky to have parents that loved the arts and knew, no matter what my particular interest of music was, that, you know, if you're in a big city and you don't expose your kid to the arts, you're missing you're missing out. Yeah. So I had that. Uh, but uh, Washington, D.C. is a huge bluegrass town. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, no. A couple things that make yeah. a huge bluegrass town is they have a venue there called the Birchmere which is similar to our venue here uh, in Nashville called the Bluebird. So it's a very venerable venue. Uh, there was a house band called the Seldom Scene, which was a very famous bluegrass band mm-hmm. that was there every Thursday night. And I, as a teenager, uh, was a devotee of that. And um, there was a daily radio show out of uh, American University that was dedicated to bluegrass. So there was this synergy between having venue, bands, and a fan base that 
Washington, D.C. This was, I mean, it goes back to the old cellar door. You remember that, that old club that was Emmy Lou Harris's start and John oh, Denver yeah. and mm-hmm. all these kind of seventies. So a lot of people don't know that about D.C. So between washing out completely in the opera track <laughs> and having grass to fall back into, it was an easy change. You know, it, that's fascinating because they are they really are at, at face value so different. And even just like a simple mm-hmm. idea of vibrato. Vibrato, uh, yes. of course, with classical and, and completely straight tone with bluegrass. My niece, Jamie, Jamie Ferguson, she was a classical musician, violinist, very accomplished in, uh, in college. And she, then she went into, for her major though, green chemistry. And so she went to Ireland to, to complete her master's in green chemistry. Mm. And guess what she did in Ireland? She went to those clubs, grabbed the violin off the wall and learned to be a Celtic violinist, a fiddler. Wow. Fiddler. And wow. She's which one is, of the which is very different. She's absolutely, and she loves the juxtaposition of the classical and the mm-hmm. and the bluegrass thing. And see, I actually do too. My my father mm. from Mississippi, he you know loved bluegrass, uh, and I I you know definitely had some classical uh, influences in growing up mm-hmm. in big, big cities because we moved around a lot. Um, he was an air traffic controller, and we moved around. Oh, a lot. really? Huh. Yeah, oh, yeah. Talk about your tech side of the brain. See, so he he was his main deal was the tech side, the air traffic control. In fact, he was one of the first 10 people that got picked from the air traffic controllers to learn uh, to to program computers. And he was one of the first ones to program the the air traffic control computer system. That's something. Yeah. Yeah. But guess what he did at night when he got home? Grabbed his guitar and sang old. Hank Senior songs and all that yeah. and taught us bluegrass uh, for the most part was country and but yet we moved around different places so one one time uh, in Miami I think he discovered I don't know how he discovered it but he discovered a minor chord so he started putting <laughs> a minor chord in every song he knew you are my sunshine my only oh wow <laughs> yeah, yeah it's because you love the chord it yeah. was like nice. yeah so is it yeah. But he uh, he needed that for stress relief. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, if you were, and if your business was the creative side, you really do need that that technical side. You know, uh, it's funny we mentioned. I, I, I it was difficult moving to Nashville as a singer because of my early opera training, because the vibrato uh, people just couldn't get past it, and I struggled to control it. I mean, I could control it from an operatic standpoint. But I could not sing straight. Yeah. And of course, you've got such a big voice, too. And that the operatic big voice does not work with microphone technique. And so you right. you had to learn to control that volume. I am doing a fascinating trade with a guy named Mark Tress. I'm teaching him um, contemporary and he's teaching me classical. So I haven't had much classical training back in college some, thank God, because it did help me get my voice back when it got damaged. But that's a whole other story. But anyway... I really am enjoying completely flipping my genre and learning something new. And uh, it's it's been fascinating, both of us learning what is similar and what is dissimilar about classical and contemporary styles. But I think you would probably agree with me that uh, we can enjoy other genres and they can actually influence us in weird ways, even just inspire us in our own genres. So we don't have to just 
love our own thing. We can actually appreciate, right. you know, great things in, in all kinds of genres. So Absolutely. I think it's, it makes us more well-rounded as, as art, artists and creatives. Uh, so what are some of your other sources of inspiration and or mentorship and how do you pass it forward? How do you pass it forward to other people? What advice would you give like a teenager looking to find their own way into a successful music career? Yeah, that's a great question. I think being an only child has been one of my biggest sources of inspiration. I know that sounds weird just laying it there, but uh, one of the reasons is when you're an only child, you have to be somewhat extroverted. You have to go find people to play with. Yeah. <laughs> you are generally the one that has to kind of come up with the idea, uh, you know, as a child anyway. Uh, and so I um, learned to love and the collaborative process even as a kid. And so I was inspired by my friends. I was inspired by the crazy adventures, whether it was my young, young childhood or my teenage years. It was always with friends. And I always felt uh, inspired by others. I hung out with a lot of musicians, of course. And I'm lucky. You know, my parents were, we moved around a lot too, but uh, they were uh, college professors. So we bounced around universities, kind of like maybe you got bounced around airports or, a mil pardon me, a military around bases. So early on, my a lot of my great uh, adult influences were uh, their graduate students in and out of the house. And then I just had, a, I guess maybe I was serious enough about music at a young age that uh, through guitar teachers and other adults who played, they took me seriously. They didn't take me as, yeah. um, as a child. They certainly took me as a beginner, but not as a child. And so I had a, I'm lucky to have had really healthy, inspired adults in my life. So I'm, <laughs> you know, my I'm thinking about trying to inspire younger people forward momentum. If I had to, if you had to nail me down to one yeah. piece of advice, no matter whether you're creative or not, forward momentum, doesn't matter how much, but you have to protect it at all costs. I think content creation and young people are better at it now than I was. I'll speak for myself. They know how to do it better. So I think constantly creating things, protecting forward momentum, it actually energizes the next thing. Mm -hmm. And, and one of those things will be a delivery point for you, whether it's career or money or whatever, but you just have to protect the next thing. Yeah, I agree. The best thing that people can learn sometimes is when you hit a brick wall, it's just a turning point. It's like, I think that's what you're saying, right? About forward movement. Yeah. Don't let the brick walls stop you. Just let them turn you. And the key is to not recognize it as a brick wall. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it might hurt a lot when you fly into it, <laughs> but you don't have to, you don't have to recognize it as a brick wall. Yeah. It's, it's really you just know? a turn signal uh, or a veer signal this way. And then it might, you might even come back to it at some point. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, man, that's great advice, Mark. Um, all right. You're a writer's writer, not content to just write hit songs. You also write poetry, essays, and now you have this gorgeous book. Honestly, I love this book. I highly recommend it, guys. Uh, I will put the name of it in uh, the show notes and a link to where you can get it. You've got to read it. Excellent. But would you mind reciting one of your poems for us here on All Things Vocal? I would love to hear your voice do that. I'd love to. I'd love to. You know, and, and 
beginning to write poems and blogs and books, I guess it may seem like a natural progression from writing songs. And I expected it to be, but it really wasn't. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess on some respects it was being a writer, but uh, I expected I uh, maybe the, the skill set of being a songwriter to transfer over to that of a book author or longer pieces. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't. So anyway, I, I've just fallen in love with having room to write. You know, I think that the challenge of writing songs, especially commercial songs, was, you know, pithiness and getting to the point and exactly in three minutes or less. The challenge in writing large pieces is also getting to the point and keeping the point for long expanses of time. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, that's been a challenge. So I love challenges. I love things that put me back into um I've certainly not done everything there is to do with songwriting, but I uh, feel so familiar and comfortable with it that it's nice to be out of my comfort zone with other types of writing. So I've, I started with a band blog, actually, is how that whole thing started. Oh, wow. I was kind of documenting uh, my band Runaway Home and our our uh, craziness on the road, and then I just fell in love with uh, long-form narrative-style writing. So, yeah, I will read you this relatively short one, which I think is apropos to today. Okay. It's called, Where Did You Go? The first time I saw her, I didn't know that it was her. She was a rusty swing set in a red clay Oklahoma field. But I should have known that it was her once I propelled myself into the air and felt her kiss my face. I didn't realize it at the time, but I saw her again in a small mining town in Mingo County, West Virginia. She was a union card in the weathered wallet of a tattered man standing tall on a bent back and breathing deeply through black lungs. But I should have known that it was her when the man looked back at me and smiled. She was there in the Florida panhandle in 1977, but I didn't recognize her. She stretched sideways from Crawdad Creek to Alligator Pond and up and down from the green sawgrass glade to the blue sky. But I should have known that it was her because there is nowhere else in the world a child can feel that free. I've seen her thousands of times since, and I know her face well. She showed up as a volunteer in a soup kitchen in the District of Columbia, and in the home-run stare of a 12-year-old standing at home plate. She was a grizzly cub crossing a highway in Yellowstone National Park. She was a Vietnamese shrimper on the South Texas coast and a businesswoman boarding a train. She was a teacher turned soldier after 9-11, two best friends sitting on the tailgate of an old farm truck, and protesters in the street. She is far more than a statue and far less than perfect. I knew her as tough, sweet, two-fisted, tattooed Harley mama with a snake slithering down one hand and a butterfly floating across the other. She is everything and everyone. But just when I thought I knew her, really knew her, she became unrecognizable to me again. Now she hurls saliva and cynicism at people that she doesn't even know. She is a hateful bullet, a fear-infested zealot, and a con artist. She has a taste for the silver spoon and an ignorance of the empty one. She is as lost as a teenage runaway in a Seattle Greyhound station. She is as ugly as the past bound to repeat itself and as striking as a future thrown into question. She is an out-of-touch politician and a righteously ignorant voter. She is both pride and punchline. She is the custodian of the promised land and a dystopian carnival barker. I want her to apologize to me, 
but I don't know that I'd accept it. I want to apologize to her, but I don't know if she'd accept it. I think if we could once again show each other some grace, I would tell her that I love her and then lean in to hear her whisper it back. I would ask her honestly and without pretense, where did you go, America? And she would answer me truthfully and without spite, where you led me to go. Gosh, that's incredible. Thank you. I may just put that on replay. (laughs) Incredible. Well, I tell you, there is, and you you know this, being a great performing artist, there there are several skill sets that have to come together perfectly with uh, uh, writing and reciting it. Yes. Um, I've luckily been able to recite my work a lot, and there have been times where I don't, you know, skip or stutter, but the words fall flat. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, it's a performance art. And I think the exciting thing about reading, uh, I mean, the exciting thing about it is that you can't cover it with a guitar. <laughs> you know, I mean, you're out <laughs> there, won't help. it's going to happen or it's not going to happen, you know? Right. So, uh, what I noticed that you did was, and, and guys, this is a podcast and it's just audio, but we're able to see each other through this app called Squadcast that we're on right now. And I watched him. And what's your face? Did, you went somewhere, Mark. That's the secret. That's the secret of real performance as opposed to rehearsal. That, And I just talked about that in my, my last podcast. But you went there. You went. You were talking to somebody. You were communicating to somebody. Not me, because I've already read it. It wouldn't make any sense. You were communicating to the heart, right. the heart of the listener that was listening in. We need to practice that. It, it's an acting technique. But as Sanford Meisner says, real acting is behaving authentically in fictional circumstances. So you That's were right. behaving That's as if, right. yeah. The listener. Well, you know, you had a a podcast episode. I think it was at least eight or nine months ago, if not more. And I forget the woman's name, but she was a performance coach that you know. Oh yeah, Diane Kimbrough. Diane Kimbrough. Diane Kimbrough. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Uh-huh. Diane Kimbrough. And that was a great episode. People ought to go back and check that out because cool. she, you both talked a lot about how do you reach an audience. Yeah. Because. Uh, fast guitar licks or even a great lyric is not enough. Yeah. You know, if uh, if you wall them off and you don't bring them in, talented is not enough. It's kind of like the anti-Hallmark card, right? Love is not enough. It's not enough. <laughs> no. You know, there, there has to be, there has to be, you know, kindness and uh, compassion and, and a degree of health. Love is not enough. Well, talent's not enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah there's yeah. a lot more to it, don't you think? I think that was the point of your that podcast, if I remember right. Yeah, cool. Yes, and she's amazing. I love double teaming people with Diane. Yeah, she's she's she and I yeah. try to pull people to the same place. You know, people don't realize that, and I think this is true of all art. There's one purpose for it: to deliver messages. That's right. Okay, so getting back to your songwriting, you found a really funny and creative way to launch your new single. Uh, tell us about the series that you created with the help of some very colorful friends. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, and you know, uh, a lot of people know me as, of course, kind of folk Americana bluegrass, because on the non-commercial songwriting side, that was my artistry for so long. And of course, I have the band Runaway Home, and we are certainly kind of folk Americana. I love traveling with that band. But those people that know me well and uh, write with me know that I have a different part of my voice, I have a country soul part. So I've been aching to kind of carve out a new um solo track. Mm-hmm. 
different, of course, from Runaway Home, but also different from the other dozen records that I've made. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I did, I've got a really uh, close friend of mine who's really, really talented guy, younger guy. His name is Gabe Berdoulis. I think you're going to hear a lot about him uh, as a producer coming up. Mm -hmm. But I put a lot of I put a lot of trust in him and backed away from production and having my hands in it, which those of you that know me uh, would be surprised I was able to pull that off because uh, <laughs> I can I can be a bit of a control freak over my own stuff. But it it's been a great ride. It's been great having somebody else kind of bring their vision in. So we came up with this EP that'll be out in the summertime, and the first single is called Craziest Thing that uh, Gabe and I wrote together. And uh, essentially the song, the verses talk about all these crazy things that uh, I will tell you I either did or did not do. <coughs> and the chorus is the craziest thing we, we do is loving somebody. So I put out the call to friends and fans and anybody skipping across my Facebook or or Instagram to send me a little 15 second clip of the craziest thing they've done. Mm -hmm. And I was a little worried that nobody would do it. Cause you know, you can ask those things and it's a little bit of a pain to for people to use their own phone. And then this, this will kind of crack you up. The hardest part was getting younger people to do it. Oh, how funny. I had no trouble getting older people to do it. I think partially because I thought about it. Uh, you need a little bit more time on your belt to get that crazy list up. <laughs> up and on. You know, it's hard to it's hard to get it through in your 20s. But also I found that a lot of young people were just um, afraid to uh, put out there the craziest stuff. But I had this a bunch of people send in little clips and they were just great. Uh, a few of them I did have to edit. A couple of them I had to actually uh, insert bleeps. into. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I wrestled with, okay, authenticity, truthfulness, let it be what it is. They seemingly don't care. No, I better believe <laughs> Little ears can Yeah, little ears, yeah. exactly. But it was really a fun way. And so I, we basically had these little 30-second snippets, uh, and it would start out with me saying, hey, I've got this single coming out. And then they would say, hey, the craziest thing I've ever done. And I've had, I had, honestly, my mom did one. Oh wow! And I think she was probably near the near the top of the list for drinking beer with her friends and rollerblading in the Pentagon parking lot <laughs> until the Pentagon police picked her up. <laughs> so that's what I'm talking about. Maybe you got to have a little life under you yeah. to have the, the real crazy story. So anyway, it was a it was a fun way to kind of gin up interest in the song that just came out uh, April seventeenth. You know what? I'd love for everybody to hear a little bit of craziest thing. So. With your permission, I'll play a little bit of it, eh? Oh, great. Okay, cool. But the only time I've gone too far All right, Mark, your speaking and singing voice are both incredibly resonant and expressive. Tell us a little bit about what you do to keep your voice in shape. Smartest thing I ever did was start with uh, voice lessons and start with this opera coach, even though it was um, at times traumatic and embarrassing. I learned as a teenager from 
a real pro how to take care of your voice. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I have had wonderful uh, vocal coaches since, you included, of course. I love working with you. I worked with the great uh, Phoebe Binkley in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter how um, good you think you are or well-tuned your voice is, you need to search out instruction. Mm -hmm. I learn something new every time I go to a voice lesson or just simply talk with another singer. And I put that in my catalog of what to do. One of the things I've always done is take pretty good care of it. Now, in the 80s and 90s, and you had to do the same, we sung in a lot of smoky bars. Mm -hmm. yep. um, you, couldn't get away, you couldn't get away from nope. it. Uh, best thing that ever happened is when they went smokeless, right? Mm -hmm. Tootsies would never be the same. <laughs> no, 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 it wouldn't start that way. You're right. Um, so I, I tend to um, warm up a lot, uh, warm up the voice every day. I sing every day. You know, one of the things that I ran into, I had vocal surgery, vocal cord surgery in 1994. You did? I ended up, as, yeah, as much as I took care of my voice, and this is probably a, a good message to send. I mean, you can do all the right things and um, still have problems. And I ended up having a, a vocal polyp, a very large one that had basically disabled one of the cords because of the weight of the polyp. Of course, I didn't think it was me. I can remember changing engineers in the studio and changing microphones and going, this mid-range sucks. You guys got to work well with me. Mm -hmm. It was the instrument that was broken. And finally, I was singing with Michael Johnson. You remember Michael? Yes. Uh, yeah, um, I do. Still over her shoulder, great singer, great guitar player. We were out in California, and, I, uh, and that polyp blew on me on stage. Oh God! And so uh, it was. It was uh, gross and, disa and disastrous. But luckily, we're in Nashville here, and we have the great Vanderbilt Voice Center, uh, Doctor Ossoff, and I think I had Doctor Mitchell. Mm -hmm. there. And I, it was so important that it's easy to remember those names. And we're going back to 1994 for me, but uh, they saved my career. Mm -hmm. And so I had vocal cord surgery. Uh, one of my favorite stories about that is that <clears throat> after surgery, of course, you have to be totally silent. Mm -hmm. I had to be silent for about three or four weeks before to reduce the size of it so they could do surgery. And then more importantly, I had to be silent for, I don't know what it was, but it was at least a month after. Mm -hmm. And people associate muteness with deafness. So <laughs> that entire month I was quiet. Out. People yelled at me. <laughs> exactly. That's funny. It did work to my advantage one time, though. I can remember walking into the Department of Motor Vehicles to, get, to do my registration. And I was wearing this pen that said something like, hey, I'm not being rude. I'm just on vocal rest or something. And and my wife at the time, I think purposefully, bought this. You remember the little magic slates where you'd write yes. and rip the top yes. sheet off and it would, it would erase it? Well, I'm pretty sure she bought me a Barbie, one, a big pink Barbie. <laughs> I walked around town writing notes on this pink Barbie thing. So anyway, I'm, I'm in this long line. I'm trying to figure out how it's going to work. And I finally walked up to the the police officer who was in the kiosk. And I kind of motioned that I couldn't speak and needed help. And he got this terribly bereft look on his face, came around, took me by the hand. So I'm holding this huge cop's hand, walked me, <laughs> walked me around with long line of people to a manager in the back and said, uh, said, you know, darling, this guy is deaf and dumb and he needs our help. And I thought to myself, yes, yes, I am. Whatever works. <laughs> Whatever works. So 
And, I'll, and I will tell you, I don't know whether uh, it's a state secret, but your secret combination of water and juice. Mm-hmm. Pineapple juice. Game changer. Yeah. I couldn't believe how much of a game changer it's been, honestly. Pineapple juice and water is amazing. One part pineapple juice and three or four parts water. Just really dilute pineapple juice so it doesn't add acid reflux. But yeah, it's that bromelain enzyme. I, I found out about it the hard way when I had laryngitis and I had two days worth of sessions to do. And I tried everybody's, you know, everybody's so kind. They Let me try my lozenge here and try my spray here, yeah, yeah. try my throat oh, spray. Yeah. And nothing oh, worked yeah. until I grabbed that pineapple juice out of the refrigerator and put it in a big glass of water. And I could even get in my head voice as long as I was sipping that. And I never forgot about it. And it works for, you know who it doesn't work for? It's people that are allergic to pineapple juice. That's who it doesn't work for. Right. Everybody else, right. it works. <laughs> I keep a six pack of that in my uh, travel bag. I mean, I, I don't go anywhere that I'm going to sing without it. So, yeah. And just um, a little note as we're talking about vocal polyps right here. Just guys know this, that's, that uh, sometimes surgery and medicine are definitely necessary, but I would say they're rare. And I have actually helped people with that that were diagnosed as inoperable polyps. This man uh, actually completely get rid of his polyp by changing his technique. So that's mm-hmm. not to say don't go to the doctor and don't take the doctor's advice. And at some point, at some point, do surgery. And Dr. Ossoff is the best. But be very careful who you take advice from. And if at all possible, you know, avoid surgery. Yeah. And again, you know, if you're a singer, sometimes it's not obvious that you're having physical mechanical problems. Yeah. Uh, again, I my first symptom was a loss of mid-range. Mid-range. That I attributed to, you know, again, microphones, preamps, but it was it was uh, the mechanics of my throat. So the bottom line, if in doubt, check it out. Go to the doctor and get scoped. All right. So while we're talking about vocal cords, let's talk about another kind of string. Mark, what's your favorite brand of guitar string? I've been lucky to be endorsed by Elixir Strings Uh for years. One of the things I like about it, and it's one of their selling points, is that they last a long time. Oh, Elixir. That's what I've got. Elixir. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, it's called, and it's made by the company Gore. For me, it was a practical thing because being on the road all the time in always less than desirable situations (laughs) outside or no AC or whatever. And these strings last. Yeah. They tend to last for months for me, and they still, I use uh, their Phosphor Bronze, which is a brighter string, but they just flat out last. That's so what I'm, I've got on I my I just wanted to buy a lot of strings. Mm-hmm. What about your preferred mic? I've used a lot. I've used EVs, electric voice mics, a lot. I've used a mic called Heil. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's H E I L. I've certainly used some, traveled with my own SM57 mm-hmm. for Shures before. Uh, right now, I'm still traveling with that Heil mic. There is a new company that I'm interested in <clears throat> called Ear Trumpet Labs, and they are a custom mic, and they are they look like antique mics. Huh. They have the uh, that's the whole the whole look, whether in the mic cage or just how they're they're made. But they are made primarily as a performance mic. They look like a studio condenser mics, but they are made to pick up a lot of ambient sound. So if you're a duo playing guitars and singing, you could put one or maybe two up in front of you and really try to capture kind of that old bluegrass style. Yeah. Uh, but they also yeah. make them, you know, for solo uh, voices where you're right up on them. So I'm kind of looking into that. I'm always constantly looking for new ways to make the live show sound better. Yeah. And so 
the high hole mic has been great for me because you also kind of talking about the strings. You also need something that's just going to work in every situation, mm-hmm. you know, and my mic choices over the years may not have been the, the most expensive or the best, but they tend to be mics that work in a wide variety of situations. Mm-hmm. But the, the mic of my choice was the one that was in front of my mouth <laughs> because in every, you know, I, I've yeah. worked in so many different studios and I never really, I mean, there's the C12 <laughs> right. that, that's expensive. Uh, that was, that would be the one that I did my masters on and stuff like that. But uh, I mean, I'm on an FSM 58 right now with a podcast. Mic. Well, there's a reason why they've been standard. Yeah. With my voice, it works with somebody else's voice. It would sound too boomy. So Mm -hmm. I think we all need to kind of just do some mic shootout for, for Mm -hmm. live situations as well as recording situations and and speaking situations. How do you, in these days, how do you disinfect your mics? Of course, you're probably not having a bunch of people in your studio right now, but I'm just curious because I wash mine. I wash the heads and the right. Uh, If if I'm out on the road using, because sometimes the situation is that you can't set yours up if it's a if it's a multi multi artist night and quick changeover, and they may not be into doing that. Uh, So I always carry little squares of alcohol wipes. Mm -hmm. That's that's a quick way of doing it. It tends to um, dry very quickly, so it doesn't you know rust anything. Um, yeah. if it's the home mic, I'll take it all apart. You know, I'll take the, yeah. the, the screens off. And if they're particularly, you know, gummed up, you could take a, a light toothbrush and go over them. The little foam screen that's inside it. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of times people forget to take that off and actually clean that. And I usually brush that off with a brush, but I think in general, just if you're talking about just germs and cleanliness, which we have to talk about now more than ever, right. I think it's, I think for me, it's good just to carry a handful of those little, those little alcohol squares. I like the idea of doing practical things like that to keep us safe as we get back out into the public. Yeah. And and I think that there will be, you know, even though it's not, it's been frowned upon to change mics in these multi-artist events, I think that may change. I think that- well, I think, that, no, that's a great point. And, and I think it's fair for artists to demand the ability to do that yeah. because now it's about health. You know, sometimes we get tagged as being the artist type. Like we, we have to have our own, you know, the green M&Ms in the green room or whatever. No, this is, a, this is, this is a health thing. Exactly. And it protects the fans too. So, yeah, for sure. you know, okay. So let's look down the road a little bit. What is next for you, Mark, what are you, what are you seeing down the road? Well, content creation uh, is a big part of my life. So whether that is making new solo records, having projects with Runaway Home, I'm constantly creating new, new content because ultimately I think, especially these days when we are in a virtual world, so much of things are posted Mm -hmm. online, whether it's YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, the legs of your forward momentum are upon content. Ooh, that's, that's great. That's a quote right there. I, I yeah. kind of have, you know, four tenets of my creative life uh, that I have, mm-hmm. for the most part, stuck to. And that's been personal joy. Now, you can't always, always have personal joy in every moment. But if the sum value of what you're doing brings you personal joy, you're going to keep doing it. Protecting forward momentum. Those two things are connected, right? If it's not joyful, how are you going to protect it? And again, forward momentum, it doesn't have to be leaps and bounds. It can be that one little thing you do today that says, oh, I've got to follow up on that tomorrow. Mm -hmm. The third tenant is reinvention. I probably would not have come up with that tenant as a younger artist. One, because I just didn't have the mindset of, 
having done something for a while. So the need to reinvent didn't feel there. But now um, as, a, as an older artist and author and writer, I'm constantly reinventing. That's one of the reasons why I started writing books, to put myself back to that 21-year-old self that moved to Nashville and didn't know what he was doing. I love that feeling of being a little off kilter and having to learn. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I uh, trusted my young friend to produce this new record and said, and I said to him, I, I said, let's write the songs, but you choose the musicians, you choose the studio, I will back out. It's reinvention. I mean, I, I don't need a derivative of what I've already done. And then, of course, the fourth one is content creation. When you think about that, that flows like a, a river, right? Personal joy, protecting forward momentum, reinvention, content creation. You know, Mark, that's great advice. So I have several projects going. I have this EP, the solo EP that will be out in July. The first single craziest thing we talked about is already out. You can stream it everywhere, Spotify. You can go to my website and find it. Yeah, and it would be hard to be in a bad mood and listen to that song. So ah, there you nice. go. You bring joy not only to yourself, but everybody else. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, second single will be out in about three weeks, and it's called Watch Out, Man which is also cool. the title of the EP, which will be out in July. I have um, the Audible book of the Sons of Starmount coming out in August. And I, narr I narrated it all here, so that was really fun. And then my band, Runaway Home, our, um, our prime focus, both musically and as uh, friends and creatives, uh, is love of the outdoors and wilderness and environmental protection. We made a record called Gotta Get Outside that oh. speaks directly to what we care about. And so we're developing uh, with a, a great company called Guiding Star Global, uh, a TV show, I hope, that's going to be based around. Well, that'll put some things together, well, won't it? Well, reinvention. Yeah. Let's see if I, we can host a show with all our crazy <laughs> So anyway, uh, clearly that represents our whole conversation. You constantly have something brewing. Yeah. And green, and green buttons to push on that to-do list. You know what, Mark, this has been really inspiring, not just fun, but it's, it's been very inspirational and, uh, and so much good advice. We're watching you do it. And you're obviously in the middle of joy. Where can we find you? Well, um, I, I suppose the hub is my main website, which is Mark Elliott, which is two L's, two T's, by the way, Mark Elliott, creative.com. You can find books and music. I have my store there. I'm really active on social media, especially Instagram. And the handle is I'm a creative soul, which is an eight instead of an E. So I am a C-R-E eight. I'm a creative soul. I did not do that because I was creative. The other one was. And, and that'll be in the show notes. Yeah. So feel free to reach out to me. I'm, I'm active on those and get back to people. All right, man. We'll stay in touch. You are a wonderful creative soul. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. Well, we've come to the end of another episode. Remember, you can always find me at judyrodman.com. I have a favor to ask. Right now, go to ratethispodcast.com slash ATV, which stands for All Things Vocal, and leave me a review. Thank you. See you next time for All Things Vocal, the podcast for singers, speakers, vocal coaches, and studio producers.